This morning we are continuing in our Advent series called A Time for Hope. And we're really trying to draw some comparisons between the, the Old Testament prophecies to the nation of Israel uh, that really deal with Israel in a time of struggle and despair and um, disbelief in many ways. And, and it calls for them to have hope that rescue is coming. And really the fulfillment of that is the reality of Jesus as we know it. And so when we celebrate Advent, we don't simply celebrate this kind of idyllic little country scene uh, where Jesus is born in a stable and, and these strange people are there and it's kind of just like this, uh, an event that happens in a vacuum for many of us. The truth is that that scene and that story is God's great answer to the world's strain for hope. And so last week we looked at Isaiah chapter 61 and how God was speaking through the prophet Isaiah to those who were returning from exile and telling them that even though the world had lost all its glory, that there would come a time again uh, for the downtrodden and the brokenhearted and, and those in disbelief, that they would be raised up, that Israel would be again what God had intended it to be, and that we saw that this was fulfilled, Jesus himself said it, in him and in his presence. This morning we want to look at the concept of peace, uh, or to put it maybe in a little more practical terms, the reality of healing. And I wonder if you are experiencing pain in this season of life, or if you're experiencing some level of brokenness. Oftentimes when we pray together, we'll pray for uh, those who are feeling physical brokenness in their body, for those who are feeling emotional brokenness and the burdens that they're carrying, their soul is heavy, for those who are experiencing relational brokenness, the real tangible brokenness or division that exists in relationships, or even for those who are experiencing spiritual brokenness. And in essence, we pray in that way to show all of our desperate need for God to sort of intervene in the midst of our brokenness. Or maybe this season, even more than brokenness or pain, you're feeling weary. You're tired. Life is pushing in on all sides. It is hard for you to catch a breath. Or as my wife likes to say sometimes, it's hard enough to come up out of the water to grab a breath. And when we're in these realities, and sometimes the holidays really magnify them, we really are asking a deep question in our soul, and the question is, is there hope? Is there hope or, or is this it? And this morning, I hope the answer is a resounding yes. There is hope. You see, we're not the only people who struggle with brokenness, who struggle with pain, who struggle with physical suffering, uh, emotional suffering, relational strife. We're not the only people who experience weariness and tiredness in our world. In fact, the people of God have long been defined in this way. And all through the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was spoken of in these kinds of ways. And the nation of Israel was constantly wondering, especially in their periods of exile, 
if there would be exodus, right? if there would be return, if there was hope in the midst of struggle, in the midst of pain, in the midst of weariness. And so this morning we again want to turn to the prophet Isaiah. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 53. This is a pretty famous prophetic passage in Isaiah that's often related directly to uh, the Easter season, but also, I think, speaks about the fullness of why Jesus came. Isaiah chapter 53 is uh, prophetic writing to Israel while they're still in exile, still experiencing the pain and the realities of it. I'm going to read this with you, but we're going to start a couple verses back into chapter 52. So verse 13 of Isaiah 52 This is what the prophet writes. He says, See, my servant will act wisely, for he will be raised, he will be lifted up, and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond any human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is symbolic of protection and preservation. He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should despise him, desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain, he bore our sufferings, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave of the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him, to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offering and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. In order for us to understand this reality and not just quick jump to Jesus. We really have to kind of get in the shoes of the Israelite people. 
So we won't go as intense as we did last week, but you have to kind of draw back some of the things we talked about last week in terms of what it's like to be in exile and the pain and the realities that are, that are bore on them. The experience that is talked about in Isaiah 53 is the experience of exile. That is what's being talked about there. Being oppressed, being forced into slavery, being, being mistreated, being, being um, misused in so many different ways. For us to kind of get into this reality, there's two things we have to understand about Israel. For God, when he called Israel and made a special relationship with his people, there were kind of two things that were core and key to this reality and identity that help us understand some things here. The first is that it was God's intention to richly bless his people. But then it was also God's intention that his people would richly bless the world. This goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, where God says, I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to bless you abundantly, and you will bless those around you. And so there's this understanding in which Israel or the people of God are meant to be like a conduit, a, a, a dispenser of the blessings of God to the world, rather than a container of the blessings of God for themselves. And then God said, the greatest blessing of it all is this reality that you will live with me. That there's this dynamic relationship between creator and creation. And there's one Hebrew word that really sums this up. And it's the word peace. And the Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And the Hebrew word shalom doesn't just simply mean like the absence of conflict. Right? So... If you have a household that's anything like me, the first descriptor of peace that you can give is when Fortnite is not being played, right? You're familiar with this, right? Because when Fortnite is being played at my house, it's not just my two boys who are playing with each other. It's their friends who are also on their screens, and there's voices and and crazy noises and screaming and gun shooting that I hear all the time, and there's no peace. But the concept of peace in the Hebrew language is not just the absence of that. It's much more about what is present than what is absent. So there's this idea that there's a fullness, a wholeness, an overflowing reality of joy and and identity. Uh, One writer wrote it like this, and I think this is perfect. Shalom is when everything in the world is as it should be. Imagine what that experience might actually be like. And you get a taste of what peace is like. And so when God is talking about peace or the Old Testament writers are speaking about shalom, this is the concept. It's a cosmic concept where blessing is being dispensed to the whole world as it was intended. Now, exile happens for the people of God because they dismiss the reality of shalom. They become a container rather than a dispenser for the blessings of God. And they take for granted God's fidelity towards them. And so they are wayward in their worship of other gods. They end up in exile. Now, when the Israelites end up in exile, almost always this is is what happens. And you can turn to almost any book in the Old Testament and find this story playing itself out. The Israelites will groan for deliverance, right? Because they now realize what peace really was when it's gone. 
and God will hear them remarkably in grace and mercy and love, and, and he will send a deliverer, right? So you have Noah in the flood, and you have Moses in the Exodus, and you have all the judges throughout the book of Judges that are, are following in this cycle, and you have the prophets, and you have those who would lead the return, great men of God like Daniel, like Ezra, like Nehemiah, like Zerubbabel, who would do this. And this is what's often called like the, the righteous remnant. There's these people who had not broken away from God, who had experienced peace and who were conduits, dispensers of God's peace, and yet they were wrapped up in this whole bigger reality of Israel's rebellion against God. So when the rabbis read Isaiah chapter 53, and when the Jewish people would have heard Isaiah chapter 53, this is how they would have understood it. Yet, yet, there is a sense of some righteous remnant that's among us. Some people who have remained pure. Some people who have not been been, um, adulterous towards God. Some people who have embraced the peace that only God offers. Who have been pure in their worship to Him. And because of them, there's hope for all of us. Do you see that? That's how the Israelites would have understood this. And then they would have understood it a step further. They would have understood it as, in some ways, the nations of the world speaking this prophecy towards them. So that when it says that for, you know, for my sins you have been persecuted, the nation of Israel would have understood that in their sense of lack of peace, in their suffering, in their struggle, and in God's victory on, on their behalf, it would have not only brought peace to them, but ultimately even to those who had oppressed them. You see that? And so out of Isaiah 53 is really this big idea that in the midst of pain, there is a surprising hope for peace that is actually cosmic. And into this reality, there's a group of shepherds who are minding their own business in the night on a hillside. See, Israel had returned from exile, but not really. They'd experienced some semblance of deliverance, but not its fullness, and they certainly hadn't experienced this cosmic sense of peace for the world. And to these shepherds who are in that society, people who would have been the least trustworthy, let's put it that way in the sense. In other words, in the days of Jesus or in the Old Testament, shepherds were never allowed to be called in court as witnesses because they were considered liars. Uh, And they were known as cheats and stealers and, and things like that. So I find it fascinating that when the angels come to announce this great uh, fulfillment of an Isaiah prophecy, they come to the shepherds. I feel like it's like them coming to us, right? Who are we to bear this news to the world? But that night on that hillside to these shepherds who are ritually unclean, who are the the lower portion of society, who are, are not considered trustworthy, comes the message that finally this prophecy to Isaiah is coming to fulfillment. And what does the angel say to the shepherds? 
I bring a message of shalom to the earth. Peace on earth, the old King James says, and goodwill towards men. What, is the, what are the angels announcing? They're announcing a cosmic sense of hope that the people had long desired because God had promised it and yet they've never felt it. It's why the shepherds were so motivated to move, right? Imagine some strange people show up and say, hey, over the hill, there's something pretty cool happening. You should go check it out, right? Now, some of you might be pretty adventurous and go, Uh, On the other hand, if I don't know who these people are, if they're barking directions to me, and I'm a little concerned about all that's going on, and who knows what the shepherds had been drinking and or eating before the arrival of these angels, maybe not. But these shepherds are moved to action because they understand the gravity of the message that's been announced to them. And there's something more, they say to the shepherds, for unto you. A son is born. That this message is even for them. And so they hurry to the manger scene and they find Jesus just as the angels told them they would find him. And then it says in Luke chapter 2 that they go and they tell everyone what they have seen and heard. Only motivated to do this because the sense of it is that God has done something cosmic. Here's the reality, church. Jesus is the servant of Isaiah 53. That does not mean that Israel wasn't at the time. It means that Jesus is the fulfillment of all things that are Israel. That Jesus is the righteous remnant who suffered alongside the people for their deliverance, and Jesus is the one true Israel who is not just a container of God's grace and blessing, but a dispenser of God's grace and blessing and peace to the whole world. You know why the story of Advent is so important? It's because Jesus comes as a baby. Babies are cute and snuggly and all that wonderful things that make manger scenes wonderful. But the most important story, part of this story that Jesus comes as a baby, is that he has fully committed to this project, right? He has fully entered in to the pain and the strife and the brokenness and the lack of shalom and peace that defines humanity. He did not show up and wave a wand and make all things well. He could have done this, right? Instead, he chose to enter into the reality of humanity so that he could deeply associate himself with the plight of humanity And only there so be the one who could deliver on God's promise of hope of peace to a world that is in pain and broken and quite frankly, really tired. Jesus as a baby is not cute because he coos and awes and we can sing 
uh, hymns like Away in a Manger, which, by the way, it's Martin Luther's worst work, right? <laughs> I love Luther. That, I just, I'm not sure what he was doing there. The beauty of Jesus as a baby is that he says he loved you so much that he didn't show up just to wave a wand. He showed up to deeply associate with your pain and your brokenness and your tiredness so that in it, he could provide hope on a cosmic scale. The manger, of course, is not the end of Jesus' story. Jesus came knowing full well that the end of the earthly story would be the cross. Where by his stripes and pain and wounds, we would be once and for all healed. But Paul writes pretty plainly in Galatians that lest he was born of a woman, he could not take on the suffering of mankind. And so this morning we celebrate the advent of Jesus as a baby because it demonstrates to us the fullness of his entry into pain. And it gives a resounding answer of yes to the lingering question of is there hope for people like us with brokenness and pain people who are weary, people who long for wholeness, people who long for peace, people who long not just to catch a breath, but to breathe deeply, people who long for shalom. And as Isaiah 53 promised, Jesus offers us two incredible realities as the fulfillment. The first is the forgiveness of sins. That Jesus says it does not matter what has led you to this place of brokenness. And all of us are complicit in our own brokenness. We understand this, right? We're all complicit in our own tiredness. We're complicit in our own stuff. Jesus says, listen, the Isaiah 53 promise of peace is a promise of newness of life, not of patchworking the old life. It's the the ability to enter into something whole and new and, and the ability to embrace it in its fullness. And the second thing he clearly offers in Isaiah 53 is healing. He's pierced for our transgressions, but it also says by his wounds we are healed. Jesus in Matthew chapter 8 would heal Peter's mother-in-law from a severe fever. And Matthew, the gospel writer, would paraphrase at the end saying this was to fulfill what was written in Isaiah chapter 53 that he would take up our sufferings and bear up our sicknesses and diseases so that in the arrival of Jesus there is hope for the brokenness of humanity 
So we're going to enter into an extended time of worship and lingering. And I want you to reflect deeply on the reality of the question that is in your soul. Is there hope in the midst of brokenness? And if the Spirit so moves, I would ask you to take one and or two steps of faith this morning. There's communion stations set up on either side and one in the back. We'll practice communion this morning by intention. Rip off a piece of bread, dip it in the wine, serve yourself. And as you take the communion meal, you are coming to Jesus. And in a tangible way, being reminded that by His wounds, your sins have been forgiven. That you've been accepted and embraced into new life. And then likewise, if you would feel so led to take a step into your brokenness by asking Jesus to visit you in your brokenness, the elders will be on the back wall and I would invite you to go and speak to any of them. You do not have to bear your soul. They are there to pray for you as a representation of Christ. There's nothing magic in what they do. They might ask you if you would like to be anointed with oil. There's nothing magic in the oil. This whole reality is a chance for you to symbolically and tangibly step into the realities. And then church, you might just be tired. I would invite you to go be prayed for. And as you go, to remind yourself that Jesus says, Come, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. Let me pray.